What would have been the highlight, in your opinion, of your political career? And if you had the opportunity to go back and make one change, what would that be? Well, um, it's difficult to to find a highlight because, you know, you had so many successes. But um, I think the greatest impact for me was in 2007. Hi, everybody. We want to welcome you to another episode of the Butler Legacy Podcast. I'm so excited to have again my dear cousin Loretta Butler joining me uh, for this session. Uh, Loretta, I am. I think we're up for a treat. Another treat. We always have a treat, Franklin. It's just amazing. Uh, obviously, we'll have to say who we have today, but it is always exciting to come here and do this because the encouragement, you know, we've just come off some huge independence celebrations. Absolutely. And we wanted to get this podcast going before the 50th. And so many persons have accosted us and stopped us and encouraged us of the stories we're sharing. And so I'm happy again today. Thank you. Thank you, Loretta. And to our guests, thank you for welcoming us in your homes, in your cars, on your exercise routines as you listen to this podcast. We're here to, again to educate and inspire, to tell the story of the Butler legacy. And we hope to encourage other families who have legacies to continue to tell their stories. We believe that the country will only get better if people know where, from whence we've come so that we can chart where we're going. And so we're delighted. Always. Absolutely. To have always. a very special guest with us today. And I have the distinct honor of first saying I thank Baharmar so much for being our primary sponsor yes, and indeed. being here in this wonderful environment of the Echo Gallery. It's really a beautiful um, space and we thank them. And of course, we thank the Butler Legacy Foundation for also being our sponsors. But, you know, just to just get right on into this, because I think that I talk a lot but I think I've met my match today. I, I, um, I think you're pretty ready. I think you have met your match today. Um, and you're not talking about a, me either. And I am not talking about you, even though I know that we, we, we can both together expound and carry on extensively. But, you know, it is really an honor today to have a person of the stature that we have as a guest today. And very seriously, um, a gentleman who in his very young age had challenges but who we have come to understand was really one of those young strategists that helped to capitulate the Bahamas into the status of independence. I'm speaking of none other than our third Bahamian Prime Minister, the Right Honorable Perry Gladstone Christie, who always has a lot to share. He, as I said, he was the third Bahamian Prime Minister uh, to serve in an independent country. He's probably the second longest serving parliamentarian thus far in our history, having served for over 40 years. Um, I think at the time that he was appointed as a senator by Prime Minister Solyndon Pindling, he would have been the youngest uh, senator at that time. He's um, an amazing father, very dedicated. Absolutely. And uh, he's also 
a very wonderful husband of one of the most beautiful women in, in the, the Bahamas. In the country. And I, I don't know how he captured her, but anyway, um, you know, that's from the Valley. Um, none other than his exceptional wife, Mrs. Bernadette Christie, who is who holds many, many caps. Um, she is an attorney. She is an accountant. She is a mother. She's an entrepreneur. She's just everything. And I'm sure she's the wind beneath his wings. So without further ado, as much as I want to talk about this outstanding citizen, this nation builder, this agitator, um, I'm excited. He was also my adversary, but I told him I think we made a lot of um, drama in the House of Assembly, but I love him dearly. None other than the Right Honorable Perry Gladstone Christie, who's an icon in his own, in his own right. Absolutely. Welcome, Mr. Christie. It's, it's a, a pleasure ple to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, and um, everything Loretta said, I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, she said some nice things about me. That's a wonderful change from what we used to be. Uh, when we were adversaries in Parliament, um, she spoke well about my wife, and my wife, you could never say enough about her because she's absolutely brilliant, and she continues now to do part-time construction. So, you know, helping a sister build a house. Um, she built a house for her mother next door that she gave to our son. Yep. You know, so Bernadette is a very talented and gifted lady. No, you're very, you know, and we must always talk about you know, the families Absolutely. and the women, the matriarchs that, you know, helped to build us up. I think that you, well, obviously, I remember um, everyone saying how you had such a fabulous wedding because of your bride and oh, you were pretty dashing yourself, I understand. Well, let me just say this to you. The only public figure, notwithstanding all of the invitations that came to my wedding, was your grandfather. Aww. So Milo Bolton Butler Aww. as Governor General. He sat in the front seat of St. Agnes. Um, my wife told me this morning that his driver, when she arrived at the church, it was raining hard and the driver came out with an umbrella and put the umbrella over her to walk her into the church. Oh. So, you know, connections, connections, connections. And memories. And sentiment and Absolute memories. Yes. memories. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say it is really our honor to be um, in your presence today. Yeah. And um, since both you and I um, decided we're going to be more nation builders than political adversaries, we also have to realize that, you know, despite all of that, whatever we did, was because of love of this beautiful country, the Bahamas. We've just celebrated 50 years. You were a huge part of those 50 years that um, made a difference. And we want to talk to you about that today. Also, about our involvement and your involvement with our grandfather, Samilo. Well, you know, and talking about him, you know, um, I can tell you, I was trying to work out with my wife this morning as we were having breakfast. Why did I go to Samilo's house as a bachelor and take her with me in the pond? Yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and I said, obviously, he had invited me. We went upstairs and met him, and he began the conversation saying, Now, young man, I brought you up here to tell you you're getting married. I'm going to talk to you about the responsibility of marriage, the responsibility of leading a family. But the man was always wear the trousers in the house. The man was with the pants in the house. So my wife said, I must not have heard that because I would have fired back at him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I so, love that. But it was fascinating yeah. that he played that kind of role in my life. Yeah. And as I thought about it, I realized my, also that my father was a pondite. Ah. My father lived on the jib 
in the pond. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, well, first of all, let's let's identify where the jib is because I'm not even sure that Franklin knows know what, what the, jib the jib. You know what the jib I is? I don't. Please tell me. The jib is where you now have that restaurant. Um, whatever it's called, right yeah. opposite the Family Guardian okay, building. When you when you, when you when you turn on to yeah. Ernest Street uh -huh. off East yeah. Bay Street, okay. opposite the Betty okay. Cole Park, uh -huh. that is the gym. Yeah. I got you. There was a lady called May Morton who was his aunt or relative, and, and who eventually moved down from the gym. To, but my dad grew up there as a neighbor to the bustlers. Uh, I didn't know that. Okay, and and they. It's interesting. The young men of the East, in particular formed a band called the Chocolate Dandies, oh. okay? A very famous orchestra-type band. And it, it, my dad was a banjo player in that band. Um, George Simonette was there. George Moxie was there. A man named Mike Strawn from Kemp Road. Um, Neville Stewart, I think. I think it was Stewart. He played the violin in Dowdswell Street. They were talented, weren't they? So, but listen, extraordinary men. Wow. Okay, who came together. And a lot of them named musicians who went on to have a career and, and my dad eventually left and, you know, he said when the war came on, yeah. many of them sold their instruments to donate to the war. I, I, I couldn't understand that at all. Yeah, I but but, but but that, that's how it happened. And, and, um, but you could imagine in those days, okay, um, they used to get up early in the morning to practice, he said. Oh. And they had to walk to a place to practice. And he said many times they had to practice in a hall that was down on Shirley Street called the Aurora Hall, um, and, and um, he said they'd go there early, early in the morning, practice, go back home, and then go to work. Was oh. that the Aurora Lodge Hall? Yes. That's right, because the lodges and their, their halls right. were great place but, for communities. But and w the effort they were making to be something, and when you think of it, you know, I mean, I, look, you know, you, you, it is wonderful for me to have this opportunity to talk to you, because... You can't imagine um, what the butlers would be in the history of this country because of your grandfather. Mm. Um, you know, look, he would have come at a time, 1905 or 6, when he was born. That's right, 1906. Look, um, the trade slave was abolished in 1868. Right. So that was 30-something years just before he was born. Yep. Slavery was abolished in 1834, so that's like 74 years before he was born. And therefore, the colony that he was born in was clearly trying to get used to slaves being free. Yeah. And people of color who might have been freed slaves, okay, being acceptable. Mm. And, and how he could have summoned I guess God. It has to be God. What would make a man become a symbol of defiance? Mm -hmm. What would make a man become so strong at a time when the opposition was clearly yeah. not prepared to accept you as being a man? Yeah. And, and, and you were a boy. You don't care who you were. And not only did your grandfather um, make himself into that, because it was important, I believe, for Bahamians call them behaviors, the people who lived in the colony at the time, right. to have somebody who was strong because, you know, you want to be around someone who's strong to give you the encouragement, to give you the hope that one day, because you're always living for that one day. Yep. I always envisioned him as being a big and strong person. <laughs> Actually, as a grandparent, you know, um, as youngsters, we feared the authority 
of the older ones. But I want to ask you if we can segue into this, because obviously you have had great interactions from being um, descendants of the Eastern area and also another historical area um, where your parents made their residence in the Valley. Did you always envision yourself being in public life? Um, or, or, or just tell us how you know, that evolved. You know, Loretta, this is why I think it's important to, to understand the role that some people played in our country in our history. Um, a few days ago, I spoke at an independence party in Haiti at our embassy. And I told the Haitian Bahamians and Haitians who were there that the first man of color right, to serve in our parliament was a man by the name of Stephen Dillard. That is right? correct. And that his mother was a Haitian lady by the name of Hester Algo, who put him on a boat in 1804 with two of her other sons. Mm. He became the first member of parliament. When he tried to become the member of parliament after being elected, they refused to allow him to sit. They had another election. He won that. Wow. Okay, by profession, he was a tailor. Another brother was a Laroda. He became a member of parliament. He was a jeweler by profession. Now, these were people who came, young boys who came from Haiti, made themselves into Bahamians and contributing. Interesting. But this is what your grandfather would have met in place. Stephen Dillard, they refused to let him sit, so he had to go all over again and fight. His son became a high court judge. They never would allow him to be confirmed. So eventually he had to leave the That's colony right. and go elsewhere. That's right. That. You see, so, that so, so you, you have this situation um, where in the Bahamas that we have to get used to the idea as to who did what and when. Absolutely. And so, so the people who stood firm in history and who stood strong was sending messages all along the line to people like myself who um, one day would yeah. become something. Yeah. And so I was looking as I grew up for symbols. Who could I be like? Because look, when I was growing up, the people of color could not live beyond Madeira, the, the top of Madeira Street, right? We were segmented into areas. Um, I would go to the Nassau Theater in Elizabeth Avenue. I would go to the Cinema Theater on East Street, the Capitol Theater on Market Street, but I couldn't go to Savoy Theater. And why is that? I just want to because, make sure everybody because only white my people, age only that. people, white people were allowed to go to it. So I was growing up at a time when I would say to my friends, you know, the only white people's home I ever went into as a young adult and going into was the sons of a Ministry of Works director who had mm -hmm. come out from England. Okay. And his sons decided, and right to the very end, they, they stayed here. Um, I had the privilege of helping Malcolm, one of the sons, get a citizenship. Okay. But, but it was difficult in those days. And, and the way, uh, and that is why, you know, it, in my lifetime I saw it, I sensed it. And, and so all of us who were aspiring to become professionals, aspire to get an education, all of us had this view that one day, one day, one of us or some of us will get together and bring the change about. When I went to England in, in, in 1963, Dr. Nottish BJ was going to, to medical school. Mm -hmm. I was going to finish A-levels and O-levels because of my you know, difficulties in the past. Um, and I remember turning to him in Shepherd's Bush, England. Yeah. I said, BJ, let's go home. 
let's get together with students who are coming home for the summer and let's form an organization that will bring and advocate change, advocate change, challenge the authorities. And, and, and we did that. Then we came home, got together with Franklin Wilson and all of those. Sean was then perhaps a little bit too young for that. Yeah, yeah, Sean yeah. eventually became one of the defining members of Unicall, Unicall because yeah. they took Unicall, University College students, and yeah. made it Unicom, meaning University Community. Ah, okay? okay. And, and they took it to new levels, and it really became a major agitation force for the Progressive Liberal Party. There were two things, though, that you that you mentioned. Well, first of all, um, both you and Sean McQueenie share, you know, similarities because, you know, because of his defiance, he was kicked out of Queens College. Yeah. So he didn't have the opportunity, as he shared with us recently, to actually go off to London to do his law degree. And so what what the call part that evolved to community, I guess that involved persons like him, um, you know, because he would not have been in college. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, what you did not touch on, in my opinion, sufficiently is your name, your last name, Christy, and the slavery and the changes. We know as well, just looking at your hue, as an individual, knowing your background, your father, your mother, and their hue. There was integration. This Christie may be a few shades darker, but we know that that whole thing is backed to the other Christies that go as the oligarchs, if you will, uh, of the day. So, you know, when you talk about the color def definition and the difficulties of black people coming out of slavery, a part of the story we must always capture, though, is that even though these people would have been maybe slave owners or, you know, persons just coming out of the precipice of slavery ownership, there is the cross between the black and white where a Perry Christie is related to the H.G. Christie's and, and all of the other Christie's of the lighter hue. Am I correct? And I think one of the great tragedies is that um, too many of us who are so connected um, have not lived that way. Um, you know, um, one of my uncles, Brentford, um, was the top man in North Andrews for William McPherson Christie mm. as a representative from the House of Assembly. Um, Brentford has family, sons living, one of whom is a partner in McKinney Bank. That's right. Um, but he was the key man, and, and uh, I'm sure he and my first and treated each other as, as family. Uh, and when I became a professional, I wrote um, William and, and, and his uh, wife, you know, we were really good friends in the way we spoke and talked to each other, Rosemary and, 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 and William. Um, and so, look, it, it, you, you are right in terms of the connection, but let me look at your own family. As much as your grandfather was a fighter, um, by reputation, he and Sir Asa Pritchard, right, whatever their antagonisms and differences were, respected each other, almost to the point where I used to tease your uncle Asa, that he was named after Asa Pritchard, <laughs> okay? And so, look at this now. You're talking about a Milo Bolton Bustler. Right, who, who despised everything that was um, wrong with oppression and discrimination and whatnot, but who understood 
that for there to be progress, you have to have relationships Absolutely. that respected each other. Absolutely. And so I, I, it's amazing when you, you try to understand how you could split yourself in such a way, yeah, yeah. walk into the Royal Bank of Canada as, with a boom in your hand, saying, I want change in this bike. And, and, and then at the same time, go to the next office and sit down and smile with someone. Yeah, but yeah. is it not important then, Mr. Christie, you've, you've led this country. Um, you know the dynamics of the social demographics, the economic um, challenges that we've had. You talked initially of Stephen Dillette and Mr. LaRota, who came from Haiti. You look at our country today and how split are we with our Haitian brothers and sisters. You look at us today and how split are we with our white counterparts who are Bahamians. But yet, we talk about building a stronger Bahamas over the next 50 years. What is it? These are the stories we're sharing. Is it not important for our history, for us to understand that we all share a common blood? I think it's a, no, you, you've said it. It is important for us to work together. I mean, the ethos of a country really is the ethos of all. Absolutely. A characteristic spirit, really, that binds us together as Bahamians. And so look at the West Indians who came in in droves to be, prof- you know, prison That's officers, right. police, and officers, police officers, civil teachers, servants. Civil servants. And they are integrated into society, you know, yeah. by names. They help to bring about change in our country in a meaningful way because, you know, Jamaica and Trinidad been independence long before us and they went in 62 in Jamaica and and, um, at the time we were marching towards majority rule Mm -hmm. in 67. And so so you can see therefore that when they came in, they helped to sort of firm up what was happening in the country and therefore when one looks at the Bahamas, you have to take into consideration the question what is the Bahamas and what has made up the Bahamas? What is Bahamian? And what is, it and what is Bahamian? Yeah. And so, so clearly we are a great mix of people. Now, with respect to the past versus the future, when the PLP won in 1967, sociologists said that the greatest movement from the working class to the middle class took place as a result of the change that took place, right? So the 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 anticipation and the expectation of the whole professional class of Bahamians was a great release took place when the PLP won. And interestingly enough, they won at a time where they had to make, um, uh, you know, decisions and, 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 and form a coalition government, so to speak, with A.R. Brennan becoming the speaker and Randall Fox becoming a minister yep. in that government. So it was a good start. And, and, um, and by, of course, the following year, as a result of the general election that took place, then there was an explosion in support of the PLP. Now, look, I think we have to give credit to those of that generation because it was a peaceful revolution. Absolutely. Uh, no question about okay? it. Okay? No matter what the antipathies were, but there was a transition that did not, you know, you had people let leave because they were scared as what that happened, but many of them came back, okay? Because what happened was that after the initial movement on that, um, the PLP coming to power, winning in 1968, the country accepted that change had taken place. And you could see the movements of, of people like Godfrey Kelly and yep. Jeff Johnstone and Peter Graham, okay, in their respective professional ways. 
and how they were able to to confirm with the new modality that existed in the country. And 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 so look, um I remember, you know, Loretta went um I'd met Tippy Lightburn late in life. Mm-hmm. And I know I was a part of McKinney Bancroft and Hughes firm with Hubert Ingram before we formed our own firm and Dick Lightburn a relative was a partner in that firm. I remember when Tippy was sick. I just out of the blue decided He's a major contributor to our country. Let me go and ask if I could come to see him. And I went up twice to his home and sat at his home on Eastern Road and had a really wonderful series of discussions with him about life, about what it used to be like, mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. And it, it, it made me come to appreciate that no matter what was said, no matter how bitter the divisions, you have to concede that these the, the people who constituted the UBP at the time, or UBP supporters and business, that they knew the Bahamas and they loved yeah. the Bahamas. Yeah. You see, that generation, and they knew it and they loved it and they made sure they enjoyed it and they had resources to help them enjoy it, like moving around in boats and so forth. But it, it was a wonderful example, I think, Okay. And that was a nice of a, initiative of a gener- by yourself to a, actually yes. do that. Wonderful example, yeah. you so know. And so, yeah. Talk me through. You know, you're a young fellow now. You and a call. Was your how you become a senator? What was your relationship like with Salinden and Samilo? These fellows who are the forefront, uh, the uh, you know front of this transformation. Well, listen. Whenever they came to London on constitutional matters and so trying to bring change, I would be a student. And, and sometimes when L.B. Johnson, when they came up, I was one of those persons so who would find out that they were there. Uh-huh. And I would go and see them when I go with a big enough case so I could carry a tote, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so if they, uh, they said, you like a drink? Um, without them knowing I'd order a bottle to carry with me, you see, and I put my bottle in a briefcase <laughs> okay. and so forth. So it was really beginnings where they were advocating for change. Very interestingly enough, um, when Cecil Wallace Whistler went to school at Hull University, mm-hmm. and I aspired to be a lawyer, um, one day my dad took me to the uh, courts, and um, Orville Tankers was prosecuting, and Paul Adley was defending on a murder case, and it was the first time I saw combatants in the court. Right. And it had just happened to be two of the very top you, you'd want to see. And so that firmed up my dreams and aspirations of being a lawyer. Okay. So I wrote Cecil asking him if he could help me. Okay. And, and so all of these little things are coming together and so forth and so on. And, you know, um, um, Ed Moxie coming into the valley. Okay. And saying, listen, young fella, you like politics. Come go with me. Um, Rusie Cadet, who's yeah. from the pawn. Absolutely. Building a house in the valley. And Rusie Cadet saying, People are scared to hold the polls for the PLP. So I'm going to take a couple of you fellas who can't vote with me yeah. to hold the polls. And so I went, you know, so you, you had situations like that. And so my being around them helped to shape my aspirations, right, and whatnot. And then, you know, um, Milo and Matthew yep. Butler, we were in London together. Um, Matthew used to come to an apartment shared by me and Tony McKinney, okay. a lawyer here. So uh-huh. we became good friends, Okay. And whatnot, and and then when I came home, I came home as a result of Sir Lyndon sending for me. Okay, the seventy-two elections were coming up. He had George Smith call me. They had something called diversified services at the time, 
a company called Diversified Services, Basil Nichols, George Smith, and a man by the name of Dave Probinsky. Um, and they sent me a ticket, saying I must pick up a ticket. He flew to Arsenal for a free ticket. And, and then they took me up to his house, Linda's house, and Linda said, I'd like you to run it. And he was Okay, I just where finished. Where his mother is from? I didn't know. I finished the bar. I finished the bar, so I said, um, "Yusra, <laughs> now." <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, you know. So I then went home to talk to my mom. My uh, mom said, "Well, listen, um, you don't know Baltron and Bethel. He used to teach you in Sunday school." Right, I said, right. "Yes." Yeah, yeah. He said, "He has a brother, Philip, Philip Bethel." Yeah. Listen, this, this, so I went back to so, so Lyndon, Simbo, Bo Simeon, Bo, George Smith, all those up on the village, Soldier Road, yeah. his home on Soldier Road. I said, listen, I'm going to come home to campaign, but I want to work in London for a bit. Mm-hmm. I said, believe it or not, although Tankeress, who was then in opposition, got me into a law firm in called Lovell, White and King in London. Ah. Okay? He himself had done it. Okay. And I said, all of that even offered me a, a, a real job, you yeah. know, and so forth. But Paul Bethel, who was the managing partner of McKinney, Bank of Hughes, was a family friend of my mother's family, the Allens and the Careys and McCartney's and, you know, and so Paul Bethel had a grip on me, okay, <laughs> family grip. I want you to come back to that, but, but continue. But listen now, and only Hubert Ingram could come to me and his audacity, yeah, yeah. okay? I mean, he was audacious enough to say to me, Christy, let's leave here, because he was articled there. And, and, and let me just, you're talking about segues, let me just say this. Sean McQueeny is a perfect example of how a man could be absolutely brilliant, brilliant in writing, brilliant in, in law, a tremendous graph, one of the top lawyers in the country in the law of trust, mm-hmm. and not go to university. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But That's that, is, right. that is the story of Hubert Ingram and Brave Davis. Wow. Neither of them had the opportunity to go through off. lack of funding and financing to go to university. Both of them became brilliant lawyers. And I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this even with respect to Hubert in terms of the complexity of the cases he dealt with as, as, as my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Brave has appeared in the, Brave Davis, our prime minister, has appeared in the highest Courts in the Privy Council, arguing the Privy Council. So, but it is an extraordinary statement of the Bahamas. Right. Okay? That these people who were born in the most humble of circumstances, like um, Hubert Ingram and Braidbase, both of whom became prime ministers, was able to ascend to the top political office in the land and to be capable of being seen to be in charge and to run effectively, to run the offices of prime minister effectively and efficiently. So, so it's, it's a wonderful country when we look at it with a wonderful history of how, you know, you can set, you can be an exemplar yep. for so many thousands of Bahamians who sometimes are overcome by the intimidation, mm-hmm. okay, of circumstances. Yep. I can't do this, they would say. And I used the example saying, listen, man, somebody decided when I was 14 years old to say that I couldn't learn, right. I should go back Okay, I'd get a trade. And Donald Davis told my parents, no, no. Something went wrong with that boy, send him back to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he yes. then put me with some teachers. Right. Okay, um, who I would never, ever forget. Okay. And, um, and, and um, Gren Hall, for example, I was shocked one day when I saw 
Um, when I had finished university and all that, Grant Hall was a big F and M and so <laughs> forth. But she was a wonderful teacher who nurtured me, yeah. Hilda Barrett. Okay, so a wonderful teacher, uh, you know, Hilda Barrett, um, who nurtured me. You know, she she was in Donaldson, and 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 and, and cadet, little cadet. Okay, I mean, again, these are people who, 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 um, uh, I think made the difference in me made me believe that I could be something. I went and took a lot of BJCs. I then went to night school. And when I passed, I think I was the best student in night school in right. terms of GC, Congratulations. GC passes. The then headmaster, H.M. Davis, asked to see me. And he came to see me. I went to see him, sorry, at Government High. And he offered me a place back in Government High saying that whoever put you out made a mistake. Yeah. So what message, year. Mr. Christie, would you give to, you know, the teenager? young, you know, 20-year-old who is confused, you know, had a, a rough life growing up, you know, don't, doesn't really know whether they have the ability. Because, you know, you go through your circumstances, somebody tell you you have a learning disability, you feel like, listen, you aren't going to well, have about anything. What's the message to the young person well, who are watching the this first podcast? The message is, let me congratulate you and, and, and um, Loretta um, for this kind of program. You see, because people who are wonderful example setters, who we call exemplars, people who set an example, who uh, like your mommy could say, I want you to be like him. Right. Now, my mommy used to always say, why don't you be like David? David <laughs> Allen was my, <laughs> first, he was my first cousin. Yes. You were born on the same day, but, I, but half an hour apart. But he was always a Christian yeah, yeah, fella. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, mommy, you know, I got to be a sinner. You got, you know, I got to, you know, let me do it. I go to Sunday school and I know all the Bible and all that sort of stuff. But I grew up with that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, why don't you be like David? Well, life is about that, being able to look for examples. So you look for examples of people who have the discipline, who have the understanding of life, and then you say, it's never too late mm -hmm. to begin. Yeah. Okay? Um, look at me. When I went to university, I was three years older than the average student at university. When B.J. Nottage and David Allen, my cousin, and Eddie Bailey, and all these people who went to university, all right? Um, started university, um, I was, I had to go to back to do A levels and, yeah, yeah. and 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 get them. So I, so you never give up. Yeah. Uh, but importantly, teachers shouldn't give up on children, and parents shouldn't give up, give up on children. Yeah. And so when you ask about that, the country has to find a way to lift up what you're doing now. People who can tell a story, mm -hmm. and tell a story effectively, so that those who may hear it could say. Why couldn't I do that? Yeah, yeah. Why couldn't I be like that? You know what it was to know that your father cried before you for the first time yeah. when you got put out? Yeah. I'm still emotional about that. Yeah. Because that made that put a chip on my shoulder. shoulder. Yeah. When you had to walk back into a situation where the children in the morning assembly at Eastern Senior School say he got put out. Yeah. The shame that yes. you had to carry and yes. what your parents carry. So that put a chip on me. I decided... Um, I, we formed the Bali Boys. I was going to be the best dancer in the Bali Boys. <laughs> okay? Because the I, I had to prove myself. Yes, I had to prove myself. I, be, I, I went into athletics. Yeah. I, I used to train 5 o'clock every in morning. One. I built a jumping pit in my yard. I became the first Bahamian to win a medal in field events and the second Bahamian to win a medal in an international competition. I see. Next to Tommy Robinson. Nobody knows them kind of things. But yeah. the fact of the matter is that's because I was driving myself 
to make up for all the problems I was to my family. Yeah, yeah. And I had and so you have to have some kind of drive in yourself yeah. to say, I'm gonna do better. And the country has to find a way to keep on reaching down to Absolutely. people and com communicating them, don't give up, don't Absolutely. give in. You Absolutely. can do better, you can do more. Yeah. And, I, and, and finding a way to help them. I love, I love that story and there was so much that I wanted to come back to, but you know, I think one of the things when we talk about the legacy of Sir Milo, and I listened to um, Prime Minister talk about his challenges, you know, it's not where you start. Yeah. It's also not what you accomplish in terms of academics Absolutely. that propels you to the top. As we know, our grandfather never even finished, yeah. um, you know, formal education. Um, formal education. Yeah. So he didn't have the opportunity to have a high school diploma. That's correct. Uh, you look at the great achievements of Sean McQueenie, yep. who, as Mr. Christie just articulated, really is probably one of our most brilliant minds, but did not have the opportunity to go, to to go off to university. Mm -hmm. You look at Mr. Christie himself, who had a huge setback in, you know, basically people saying, hey man, you, yeah. you too dumb, you can't learn. Yeah. And to take that chip and to use that determination to propel himself to where he is. I think the underlying theme, the thread that binds these fibers together are definitely the stories of the underdogs. No question. Well, let me just say something too that you, you, mommy, you, you almost took me away from. You know what it was for me growing up to look at the butler boys on the back of a truck, driving on Montrose Avenue shouting, Iceman, Iceman, selling ice. Yeah, yeah. And when I looked into it, and I went back and checked with Godfrey Enius, who was one of the neighbors of the butlers and the pawn, Who right? considers himself part uh, of the family, yeah, by no the way. No question about it, you no, know? Que yeah. no question about it, no question about it. And I just talked to him last night about this, you know? But he was saying, the fella, they used to get up early in the morning, yeah. go to the ice house, get the ice, and still make some deliveries of ice. And I'm saying to myself, the, the work ethic right. that was imposed upon them by Zamilo yeah, yeah. was clearly, he was reflecting his own upbringing. Yeah. Well, I'm told that his, his, his father died, leaving him his only son and four That's sisters. Right. Or sisters, yep. and therefore he had to grow up very quickly and sure. work as a man when he was still a boy. That's yep. right. Okay? But again, there's some elements in there that you learn from. And he transferred that and took that with him into his children. And, and, and he had a lot of them. And, but the one thing I guess he was not gonna compromise on was they had to understand that nothing comes easy. That's and sure. you had to work hard to make it happen. And your, 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 your grandmother, all right? I, I remember her as a young boy, they, they had a shop in East Street. Uh, Eliza, Ma I remember this uh, one. Eliza Malcolm. Malcolm. Yeah. Okay, where I'm running from, and I believe um, your daddy is being there with her. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, I'm, you know, all no, of no, the children had to I know, work but in I the. Mean, I remember particularly. Yeah. Okay, um, that's when I started getting no fright. But much more. Listen, you talk about pinning. Pinning gave me the first appointment very early. Right. Made me a member of the board of directors of the Broadcasting Corporation. And who was my chairman? Milo Junior. Okay, so Milo Jr. and I developed a relationship where he was the chairman and we had some outstanding men on the board at the time. And, and, um, and we watched him and it was a time when Milo led us into sending 
Charles Carter to school, um, Kelsey Johnson to school, Ed Bethel to school. He was preparing ZNS or television. Wow. Okay, so again, butlers, etc. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and and um, I had a, a another that you know, Sir Lyndon made me a senator when Ali Butler, Sarlington Butler, who was a friend of mine, uh-huh. a lifetime friend yeah. of mine, had his challenges with the PLP. Okay, who were England's chairman, and a lot of people um, decided and got you know tossed really, so yeah. to speak, and. And changes took place, and I was one of them that went into the Senate mm-hmm. um, in 1974. So when I look back at my time in public life, um, I'm there. You know, if you add my years in the House of Assembly and my years in the Senate, um, I'm ranking in terms of the, one of the oldest serving members sure. ever in the history in of the, the country. In the Commonwealth as well, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, that is so interesting Longevity in politics today is um, elusive, um, to say the least. You know, I'm very glad when I look at my sister, Glennis Hannah Martin, who's making a strive, not just as, you know, getting up there in terms of being uh, one of the longstanding MPs, but also as a female. But you, Prime Minister Christie, even when people doubted you, you continued to be successful whether, you know, in being yeah. reelected. What is the recipe, if you will, for your success? You know, and you would know this as well as I do, that, that you have to have an appreciation of people. Mm-hmm. I always say to young members of parliament, people must like you. And the only way they could like you, they must get to know you. Yeah. And the only way they get to know you, you must allow them to access you. You must allow them to be able to talk to you. You must find a way for them to see you and know you and know your goodness. And then they will allow for the challenges that you face. They will come to understand that you can't do everything for everybody at the same time. Mm-hmm. But unless you create that nexus, that relationship with them, you're going to have a problem. And, and the country now has a situation. I remember Ingram and I took um, the former prime minister um, to lunch from Jamaica, who was the ob- observer um, Bruce Golding, he was the observer, led, led the observer team in the last election here in the Bahamas when the minutes lost and Brave Davis won. Um, and he said that a very dangerous culture is developing in the Bahamas that we should be concerned about. And that is a culture of changing every five years mm. and not giving a government time to do work um, over a period of time. And so if you notice in the last 25 years, that's one that's quarter of the century, yep. there have been change every election, okay? And, and, and so the last time there wasn't when England won in 97, okay? But from that day for, that year forward, the, the elections held, change took place. And, and, and the question is, why and how do you break it? Because again, most governments need more than five years to implement their programs. Well, I like what you said about being known by your constituents, being known by your contemporaries, being known by your party. Yes. You know, you must build that um, type of bond. But, you know, I think, and I wanted you to speak to this, a part of the challenges we also have, I think, and what I've observed, is the management of expectations. Yep. And it appears that 
you know, if you're genuine, if you're sincere, if you tell people in advance, you know, listen, I could do this or I can't do that, they still believe the pie in the sky stories. You know, yeah. oh, I promise you the moon, I promise you the stars, the sun. And so they go for that because everybody wants this instant gratification. And I'm thinking, you know, when you try to be realistic, people don't want that. And so this is why we get this dangerous precedent of constantly changing. Um, how do we speak to our, our persons who represent us today yeah. for them to understand that if they want longevity, if they want to be reelected, if they want to be a second term government, what is it they need to do? Well, I'm a member of parliament for that matter. Uh -huh. Well, firstly, to know that rumors multiply very quickly in terms of impact and truth and that someone could start off saying i tried to get this minister on the telephone and um he wouldn't answer my telephone calls i could speak to him um or her this member of parliament all through the election period yeah, for, yeah. prior to the election but as soon as the election they change that becomes a very dangerous situation where word of mouth sip 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 it firms up. Yep. And not and so, just word of mouth now. Okay. I mean, this no, whole social media, media thing well, social media is well, dangerous. The telephone, you know, the modern communication. Now, you know, you, you could sit in Nagua and have a chat with anybody anywhere in the world. Yeah, so yeah. we have a problem. But it's true of every country in the world now. I mean, and, you know, you, you're going to watch the United States go through a general election and you're going to be astounded to see um, how people think. Right. And, 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 and regardless to whatever is happening, which candidate they're going to support, notwithstanding whatever challenges that candidate has. And you see this thing happening, and that represents the change that is taking place in the world where people's expectations, people's demands, people's anticipation of what is in their best interest is all changed to a now. I want it now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you have to give it to me now. You have to give it to me. Uh, and do it in a way where I can reasonably believe that it's going to happen in this term. And so, so do you think we, then, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you yes, here. Yes, go on. Do you think then that it would be um, imperative for us as a country to really move forward with our national development plan there is that we can get everyone to buy into, to understand where we want to move the country and our people, as opposed to us just being so partisan. You, um, I, I'm just wondering. But you are so right. And, but it means getting people to know that there is a national plan, getting them to buy into understanding it, and then they would know exactly what the country needs to do moving forward. I'll never forget the shocking experience I had I flew to Jamaica to speak to the stock exchange in Jamaica, and a professor from the university asked me a question after my speech, saying, Hi, Melissa, how do you account for the Bahamas falling so far behind Jamaica in ease of doing business? Mm -hmm. And Loretta, I had to catch myself. I said, my God, I, I did not have that statistic, the evidence of it. All right? And so I just had to accept that what he said was right, and to say that Jamaica is just making a very special effort, okay? 
um, knowing that the Bahamas was leading the way in ease of doing business and Jamaica and every which way and t tourism, etc. I said the right thing, but I realized that the national plan was being developed by me then. I had this extraordinary lady in charge of it, um, um, you know, and, and um, I just, we just hadn't reached a point where all of the statistics that should guide governments and guide and their the decisions was available to yeah, me. Yeah. But it made me fully aware of how important it was. And I think you pressed your finger on the right button here, that the country has to develop a national plan. I noticed that they now put Felix Stubbs in charge of it. Um, um, so it, it's, it's a critical point. Um, I always ask the lady who I appointed there who now works for Life a Key, Yes, um, yeah. you know, Doctor um, Virgil. Yeah, Doctor, yeah, okay. An, ama a, um, an amazing um, woman, you, but you, you know, when we look at it, um, persons like Sir Milo, persons like um, Sir Lyndon, and those, they didn't have a roadmap to follow. They didn't have a committee that created a national plan. Sir Milo knew that he wanted equality and civil rights for all Bahamians. Sir Lyndon knew that he wanted to implement institutions that would be of longevity, that would benefit the Bahamian people. Those things we have established, those things have been sustained. Now is the time. Christie put forward this national development plan. Um, it's sat on the shelf now for about 10 years collecting dust in order for us as a country this is a pivotal time in my opinion having observed 50 years as an independent country this is a pivotal time for us to look at this closely and to ensure that we do something positive i believe it would begin to be um the identity of who we are yeah. truly as a people and as a and, and yes and also to create um a roadmap as to where we're going. I think you're right, and I think you're doing an excellent job in raising that point now. And, and Loretta, let me just say that, you know, clearly you are not finished with um, impacting public life in our country and impacting policy in our country. And I think you must see it as important for you. Um, youth is on your side, or age is on your side, I don't want to say youth, but that for you to continue to lift up, okay, um, your voice so that it could impact positively policies moving forward. You have the experience, you've been in parliament for many years, um, you have a grasp of public policy. And so I think, let me encourage you to, uh, as someone who's much older, um, to continue this kind of program, but also independently of this program, to have a voice that can give you access to policymakers yep. I, and to help them and to influence them in making the right decisions. You must do that. I mean, just look at this young man here, for example. I, I remember when I had the opportunity for the first cellular license other than the, BD, the one yep. this issue. And I remember talking to this young man, young butler. I, I said to myself. You were very proud of him. Listen, what you mean? And when they went up. The bids went up to 65 million and people were dropping away yeah, yeah. and so forth. And they were going ahead. And I watched him grow, yeah. you know, and really grow. And, and, and the country still does not really truly know and appreciate, okay, um, the impact of, of Junior here 
and what he does and, and, and the impact he has on the command of business um, that he's engaged with. Don't you think we make a good team? Let's do this. <laughs> listen, listen, you know, for, I, I'm a... Public, uh, no, private sector, public, public sector. sector. No, but you, 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 you smile and make fun of it, but it is true. And, and your, your grandparents, the people of faith who believe that, that, you know, your grandparents would know what's happening. You know, the yeah, faith yeah. we have in our Christian Absolutely. faith, believe that. But my point is, whether they know or they don't know, there's every reason for them to be very proud, yeah. okay, of what you two have been able to achieve in life and to know that you have carried the name forward. You know, there's nothing that is more important than a good name. A good That's name. No okay. So, Mr. Christie, you serve as a two-time prime minister now. You know, I think about instances of Bahama and foreclosure. Give us a little insight of the weight, the burden that you carry as in the life of the prime minister. How, you know, certainly I know there's accolades of hugs and kisses when there's victory. You know, the talk me through the life of those deep, dark moments when you were prime ba minister. Bahama was a great test for me, for my government, and for the country. Sarkis Ismailian had a vision. He was, his father himself, they were investors here in the country. One day he came to me and invited me to walk with him behind the then Nassau Beach Hotel out where there's a stream of pond. Mm -hmm. And as we stood there, he said, one day I'm going to build a hotel over there. And you're going to be able to come from a hill over there. And when you come up the hill, you're going to be suddenly confronted by this wonderful complex of hotel. It made me go then to a former client of mine who owned the complex out here uh -huh. and to use every bit of strength that I had as a prime minister to get him to sell okay. to Sarkis's million. And he sold to Sarkis's million. I was very, very disappointed because we worked very closely with Sarkis's million. Um, Hubert Ingle, during a period, worked very closely with him. When I came back into office, um, and working with him, the challenges began. Mm -hmm. He had come to me to ask me if I could assist in raising a certain amount of money that was necessary. And I set about doing that with the China Export-Import Bank. Mm -hmm. And just when we had completed our arrangements for that, he came to my office with an attorney out of the United States to say that he had just filed for Chapter 11 in oh. Delaware bankruptcy. Wow. That was a stunning setback to me. I mean, because I was anticipating yeah. that I would open the crown jewel yeah, yeah. of investments. I would be here as prime minister <laughs> to super, and superintend that opening. But I had to move very quickly. And so I consulted my lawyers in London, my lawyers in Washington, and the lawyers here. And I had extraordinary work from Alison Gibson as Attorney General. Mm -hmm. And we then went about our way to challenge the ruling, well, to challenge the application in Delaware and uh, to argue that the jurisdiction for all of the cases should be here in the Bahamas. Right. And we succeeded. Mm -hmm. 
And this is where the current Chief Justice distinguished himself. He became the judge mm -hmm. dealing with it. Um, Justice Winder, mm -hmm. um, we br brought in Ke Queen's Counsel at the time to deal with the matter. Um, we had cases after cases after cases, and we got one in every area. In the meantime, I had added to my team Jerome Fitzgerald um, because of his expertise in business, mm -hmm. and I wanted that um, judgment. I could not travel. The Chinese did not sanction prime ministers traveling without long notice of their goings, so I needed a team that could move back and I forth. Um, um, I owe Alison Gibson, Jerome Fischel, and Baltron, Sir Baltron Battle a great deal of gratitude. I would stay in my office late at night because of the difference in time. Right. All right? And I would be here one, one two o'clock in the morning talking to them on the phone, going through making decisions. And ultimately, the negotiations moved here. Um, and I remember one night, we decided to walk out on the negotiations. No one knows that. Right. I just decided. Right? I wasn't getting what I wanted. I wasn't this and that and the other. And we walked out, but the next day, they, everybody came Started back together. Yeah. And I must, I must tell you that, that all of this was being done at the time where the politics was hard, mm -hmm. harsh, and, and people were not believing right. anything I was saying, and I had to continue. And I wasn't able to campaign. Elections were coming, and I would, I know I wasn't able to campaign. And then the chaps put half of BJ's area in my area. I never had the opportunity to campaign one day mm -hmm. on that half. On, on. So long story short, we worked this. And the, the, I'll never forget when I called a meeting to announce the agreement. Um, a couple of the Bahamian contractors, a couple of the people who worked for the staff. I got the Chinese, notwithstanding the, 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 the we found the right developer. Mm. That's now the current group. And you know, I went back and forth to London negotiating that. Okay. Um, we ultimately found that the right developer and they're now in place. Um, we got every member of the staff they got paid, notwithstanding the rules of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Everything that they owned, they earned. I got full pay for them through the China Export Import Bank. Every Bahamian contractor, up to five hundred thousand debt, got everything they they were wow. owed. Right. The others, and we negotiated for them and to get them the rest of it. But ninety percent of the ninety nine percent of the contractors were got paid it. in full. Every Bahamian who had a concession in here. Right, I got to protect their concession, okay? And so, to, for me, I came out with a wonderful result. And I'll never forget one day, Hubert Engel asking me, he said, Chrissy, what would have happened if you didn't open Bahama? Yep. I wanted to say, what would have happened if you didn't campaign against me when you're opening it, you know? But yeah, listen, yeah, that's yeah. how life is, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, um, I was a part of that exciting period. And, you know, the interesting thing is, I think it's a bit contemporary at this point for history to judge all of the decisions that were made. Uh, maybe we need another decade, maybe a little bit more. Obviously, the end result is we do have this amazing um, property, uh, and it all harkens right back to the original visionaire, Sarkis Esmerlian. And, of course, the story of this is yet unfolding. Mm. 
But, you know, when Mr. Christie talks about those dark days, those dark nights, those long nights, you know, I was in opposition at that time to him and I wasn't going to give him a, a moment, you know, in this regard. But, you know, if we can just shift gears, because like I said, that is something that history, I think, is still out on with regards to decisions that were made, with regards to a lot of things. But also as a prime minister, there's a personal side to yeah, his life. Absolutely. And even though I spoke highly of his wife, you know, Mr. Christie is, has proven his total resilience in so many fronts. Yeah. Um, obviously, he had a stroke during his time of being prime, prime minister, minister. Yep. and that would not have been an easy challenge. And what many people may or may not know is that he also elevated the cause of special needs children Absolutely. because of his own son, um, Adam, uh, who is a special needs child and who he takes um, an awesome responsibility for I in caring yeah. for personally. And so when you look at those things that he had to overcome while being prime minister, of the Bahamas. I'd like for you to speak to us a little about that, because that is something that would have affected your private life. Loretta, when Bernadette and I had Adam, and Adam was our youngest child, we were in denial as to whether or not um, he was mentally impaired. We just kept on looking for answers and answers we were looking for that he was not going to be affected for the rest of his life, that there was some way he would be able to grow and recover, okay? Like, I may have had attention deficit disorder when I was at Government High. That may explain why um, I couldn't pay attention in the classroom mm -hmm. sufficiently, and I eventually grew out of it. So maybe I said, maybe that's what so my that's son had. So it's something that you can grow out of, but we didn't do it. I didn't believe in that he was autistic, but ultimately we had to accept it, mm. okay? And then I realized that people who had this problem with their children, you never heard from them. Yep. And more and more I realized that people were hiding their Very true. children. And I said I was not going to do that, that Adam was going to become a public figure. Yep. And, you know, um, I did that here because I had this fundamental belief since I had that child and I knew the difficulties that we had. We did not have, you know, when I asked if there was a speech therapist who could help out on the speech, there were just two or three in the country. Really? If, if that, ultimately I decided I'll go to Cuba mm. and I'll ask the Cubans to sign a protocol with us to be able to provide special education teachers because we needed to do that in our classrooms and get that, um, these things. And so. I, I went ahead and, and I did that, and Adam went to a school called Gavin Tynes, a special yeah. education class there. And just to show you how desperate people are today, a lady just called me last week, a police officer, mm -hmm. to say that um, her child was in Gerald Cash, but she wanted the child to go to Gavin Tynes, and could I use my influence to help a child get into Gavin Tynes? This, this, this effort of a country trying to catch up to provide the yeah. medicine, the facilities, um, to deal with special children. I never forgot, in, I made a speech in Trinidad, the Prime Minister's conference, and the then Prime Minister, female Prime Minister of Trinidad came up to me afterwards and said, 
I'm so glad that you said that every child deserves the right to participate in the equity of the country. And you spoke about your special child and that the country must find a way to deal with special children because there are parents who cannot afford Absolutely. the medicine or whatever. Yeah. I told him about a, a woman who used to work for education who said, Ministry of Education gave her permission to bring her daughter and lock up in a room in, in there while she do the work because she couldn't leave the child home to be taken advantage of. One day I saw a woman walking with a child through the streets. I got out of my car and I, I spoke to her. And, I, and that helped to fashion in my head the need to do something to try and bring the country up to date with dealing with these issues that were just ignored. Absolutely. Um, we, I appointed a committee with Lois Similar, who's now deceased. She was an esteemed public servant. She did a wonderful report. It went on, we lost the election, it went on the bookshelves. Yeah, I yeah, came yeah. back in and I brought it back into being and whatnot. And, and, and by that time, other people were getting involved and the autism group in the Bahamas was getting more proactive and whatnot. And, and again, pushing Adam. And one day I took Adam to government house and, and the press must have asked him something. And he says, I love my daddy. And that was the headlines. <laughs> and you know why? Um, I used to spend so much time with them, yeah. and, and you're, you're so right that you have to, they, they have manifestations that they cannot control. You know, sometimes it's just rage. Um, sometimes it's sleepless nights. I remember many nights I couldn't sleep, and I would go into the office the next day as prime minister, and, and that, that was what I had to do. And, and so many times I did that. We tried, you know, and so I, 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 made myself very comfortable with the knowledge that I'd entered into a protocol with special education teachers that were brought here. The yeah. government has carried it much further now. They have teachers in math and other things in Cuba. But I, I remember telling Condoleezza Wright, she was Secretary of State, yeah. that listen, no matter what your policy is with respect to Cuba, I need to access special education teachers and teachers to bring to the Bahamas she says, we're not going to get into that. Mm -hmm. That's what you have to do as a country. You Absolutely. do it. All right. And so, uh, again, um, you know, for me, um, I, 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 I'll never forget two, two instances in my life. That one with Adam mm -hmm. and the, the special arrangements we had to make for Adam and special school and knowing that, that so many people out there couldn't. Um, my great challenge was I dedicated 50 acres on Gladstone Road right, for that. And, I, and to, for them to, I, I hired the architect who drew all the plans for a special facility okay, for people to be able to have their children taken to a place where they could be managed yeah. and then they'll, they'll be carried back to their homes. But it's wonderful, multi-purpose, multi-faceted. But place. also to give relief also to the caregivers as well. I think that was a part of that project. But it never happened. No. And so I lost the election. And but we must do that in our national development. It never happened. Because we must make sure that I'm no, told, no children yeah. are left behind. No, no citizens are left behind. We need to do that for our, our children. I um, have a question for you, though. Yeah. As we wind up. In all of your political life, what would have been the highlight, in your opinion, of your political career? And if you had the opportunity to go back and make one change, what would that be? Well, um, it's difficult to 
to find a highlight because, you know, you had so many successes. But um, I think the greatest impact for me was in 2007. I won in 2002. And in 2000, um, the following election, the economy was banging along and whatnot. And I, I lost it. And that impact then got me to understand that I had better try to find out what it is that motivates people to vote for you or for the other side, all right? And so that was a defining moment for me where I had succeeded, I thought, magnificently to get the economy going in the right direction and whatnot, but I was not rewarded for it, okay? Go come back to Bahama. There's no achievement like the one that I got at, at Bahama. You know, um, um, I had a great feel for urban renewal mm. and what I did with urban renewal because I created that based on the conditions I found in the country. One day I went up on Fortune Castle and I met a woman whose son was imprisoned. The mother had died for three children. The mother had died because she had AIDS. When I asked her, where was the toilet? They had no toilet in the house. Wow. When I said, well, where's the toilet outside? No toilet outside. Wow. And I realized here was this woman who then was professing to be a woman of God mm. because she was praying and that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, no kind of health facilities and whatnot. And I went down and called Paul Farquharson. And I said, listen, his assistant then was um, the current minister for immigration. Um, Bell? Yeah, Keith Bell. And I said, I want to form a, an urban renewal. I said, I want to do this based on the police could direct. And if the police say clean this lot, they have to clean it. Move this car, they have the car. So I want to integrate the police into this. And I want to be able to, to have a microscopic examination of what's having, happening in homes in the inner city. So children who can't eat, whether they're going to school hungry. And so a lot of policies were born, were given birth out of urban renewal. And then plus children, I th I, my mommy tried to get me to learn the piano, the saxophone, everything and whatnot. But we, I look at the children with these gifts yeah. and we had hundreds of children yeah, learning music yeah. and whatnot. And to see how my successes came in and just threw it away and abandoned it. Um, you know, the opportunities that we were giving for children and so forth. And so my, my moment was, I must tell you that to bring about Bahama and knowing that the people would take five or six years to know what role I played in bringing that about, how meaningful it was. And I could tell you the first two, three years after I did it, and I was in private, I walk in here, nobody knew me. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly they realized that I was someone who played a meaning, meaningful role in making this happen. And you saw the appreciation, you'd go into restaurants and they would tell you and so forth. And so, you know, it's, I think this was a great achievement on my part because not only we had to weather the legal storm, um, we had to go up against someone whose original vision, yeah. okay, was this and, and whatnot. But I believed at the time that if I did not do the things I did, this would still be in liquidation yeah, yeah. being fought over. Yeah. And so I, I herald, this was to me heralded as one of the crown jewels of my achievements in public life. Fair enough. That it exists, thousands of people are employed. And I look back at a moment when, so many moments that I had to, this whole challenge of faith, okay, 
over Adam, I said, you know, I, I asked myself, God, why do you create imperfect children? Why do you give imperfect children to people who can't afford to keep them? God, why do you take a woman? I remember when one of my friend's wives died, she was 41, two little children left behind. I said, God, why? I went to the church and spoke at the funeral and had a conversation with God. Why do you do this? Who are you sending a message to? So in our lives, you know, I won't be able to end as I started. When Sir Lyndon Pinling made his first choice as a cabinet minister, this is his portfolios, you know, it wasn't Curtis Macmillan, who was a minister of health, who was a doctor, you know, a dentist, or dentist. It was Sir Milo Busler. That's okay. right. And that you know, was his first you, portfolio. And you, and you know why? Because there was nothing more meaningful on addressing the health of a nation you know, the health of the nation, the wealth of the nation, mm -hmm. and the, to put the symbol there, because that's what it was all about. Right. The one who symboled, symbolized being able to reach down and pull up and help. And, and there's nothing more powerful than health care in a country. And, you know, for someone like myself who had a, a stroke and had to come back from that stroke, um, all of the challenges of faith, um, I knew then, okay, that there was somebody Okay, and that somebody had to be the God Amen. who was able to come into my life and say, your role is not finished. Yeah. Okay, I remember the doctors asking me, we have to go to the public, they say, to, to say to them whether there's full recovery. And I asked them if they had a Bible. I said, yes, um, and um, Dr. Charles Ramming was my neurologist, and he and Conwell Brown and Perry Gomez was in the room. I said, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And then I recited, put on the full arm of God, so when the day of testing comes, you're able to sign your ground. I went on to all the verses and whatnot, and they said, you're going to have full recovery. <laughs> okay? And they went out and told the Bahamian people yeah. that. We, yeah? we have had a fascinating um, time with you today. You have opened up and shared so much. Yep. I, I, I mean, I, I thought I knew a lot about you, yeah. but I've learned even more. And I think the Bahamian people are going to appreciate this very, very much. But as we get ready to close this out today, what would you like to be remembered for? That I did my best and that I served Loretta, the, the, you know, what is wonderful to go in public life, to spend the time I spent in public life and no one could say I pulled a deal, yeah. that I ever pulled a deal, yeah. okay? And that to me is so, so, so important, that I, I've come out of a, a public life and people could still look at me and say, he came out as he went in, okay? And, and, and my son said he's, he could throw the rock at the television, I'd be getting the bragging, but I don't want to share in a company. And, and he said, I should have had some shares in some company to give them something, right? Yep. Yeah, but I just, I just, this is how I conducted myself. Mm -hmm. And I think in public life, right, um, you have to try your best not to be seen to be benefiting yep. from public life. Because people will draw the conclusion, may draw the conclusion, that's why you went into it, all right? To, to use it for your own personal benefit. And they can't say that about me. Um, I don't think, or if they say it, it can't stick. You so know? does that go back to what we said earlier about a good name? Yes, there's no question about it. So, so, so the one thing that we would like, you would like to have us remember you for 
is your ethics and your good name? Yes, no, no question about that. And I hope that my children and their children will ever, ever be pleased with the fact that as someone who was the patriarch of their family, okay, because I inherited from my father, okay, um, that we did the best we could to give them the life, the best life we could, okay, and they took advantage of it, and I'm well pleased. Well, our grandfather always reminded us of the goodly heritage. Yes. He was never concerned about the trappings of wealth, even yeah. though he was able to create a lot. We, yeah. we were never taught to, to, to like things. Yeah. We were taught to appreciate people. Sure. And so I think that as we wrap up, you know, obviously we see parallels there and we love that because um, as you stated and as Granddaddy always taught us, a goodly heritage is one that um, we should be proud of. Yep. No Mr. Question. Christie, Loretta, thank you both so much. Mr. Christie, I don't know if many of our guests have ever heard these stories that, you know, they see the public figure, but they don't see the man. The man who suffers, who has to take compromise in managing a special needs son who has been through so much, even while in public life, whether it's been health or struggles of the office. And I think that is one of the fascinating things about this podcast. We get to hear so many stories that we hope inspires our guests who are watching this podcast because we don't do this because we have nothing else to do. We do this really because we want to inspire young people to look at the legacies of Somilo, people like you, uh, Honorable Perry Christie, uh, third Prime Minister of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas, to recognize that nothing is given. All of us have to make a sacrifice if we are going to be somebody, if we're going to go somewhere. And so I really want to invite our guests and thank them for watching this podcast. And as we thank our guests, I want to thank our sponsors, the Echo at Bahama for this wonderful facility that they allow us to use for each one of these podcasts. We want to thank the Butler Legacy Foundation for continuing to support this wonderful initiative. We hope that your investments is impacting lives as Samilo has impacted so many lives. And so we are grateful, Mr. Christie, for you joining us this today. And we look forward to more of our guests in the next episode of the Butler Legacy Podcast. And how could I wrap up my wonderful Loretta, my favorite cousin? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> without thanking you for helping me lead this wonderful conversation. Thank you. You just glow every time I see you. Your eyes sparkle, this dress. I mean, my God, you really make the well, butler name you know, the good a good thing, one. The good thing we wanted but to I, thank you. I can you tell you this. I knew your parents and I knew <laughs> Loretta's parents. And both sets of parents should be very proud of their children. And you two have done a magnificent job here today. I'm very pleased about what you do and continue to do that work. Thank and you. thank you very much, Mr. Christie, and thank you also, Franklin. And you know, the one thing I'm taking away from this today is that in the midst of adversity, we can still build legacies. Absolutely. And thank you very much, Mr. Christie, for demonstrating and sharing that. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Don't worry, we're friends. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a wrap. Thank you all very much. <laughs>